You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way. This week, we have Purple Bricks, Watches of Switzerland, Inditex, and Ruffer's decision to purchase Bitcoin, as well as a book review on Professor Malkiel's A Random Walk Down Wall Street. So, Sam, what's first on the list? Should we do Purple Bricks first? Okay, so Purple Bricks. So for anybody who doesn't know, Purple Bricks is the UK's leading technology-led estate agency. It's founded in 2012 and listed on the alternative investment market in the UK in 2015. And it was really setting out to be a disruptor to traditional estate agency, having no physical branches and charging a fixed fee, regardless of whether or not your house sold. And it currently charges £999 for any property that you market with it outside London and £1,499 in the capital itself. So on Wednesday, Purple Bricks released their half-year results for the six months ending 31st of October, announcing that they will beat uh, expectations for the annual results after a strong recovery in the housing market. They reported a pre-tax profit of £4.3 million uh, for these six months, up from £2.3 million loss on the same period last year. Over the last six months, ending 31st of October, they managed to cut marketing spending by £12.3 million down to £9 million. And instructions also rose by nearly 8%, with average revenue up 3% to £1,392, while total fee income grew 6% to just under £50 million. And as a result of the positive trading and the cost cutting, Purple Bricks said that the full year expectations for full year earnings to be at the upper end of the consensus range between five and 10 million pounds. And this on the day sent shares up around 17%. So Sam, on the company Purple Bricks, which was previously a Neil Woodford favorite, what do you take on these results and on the company as a whole? My initial view was actually, I thought they looked quite poor, but then... That was before I realised that because the revenue is down 6%, it looks like that's just due to the revenue recognition of the instructions. And if the instructions themselves are up 8% compared to the prior period, I suppose that's it's fairly decent. But I guess when the, when the property markets bounce back as well as it has, and we're in an environment where it would favour a pure online play such as Purple Bricks, I'd have probably expected them to do a bit better. Yeah, that's well. That's almost exactly what what I felt as well. And given that there has been um, quite a comeback year to date, the shares themselves are still down twenty percent. And like you say, a lot of other technology companies in this environment have done quite well. And there's been you know a resumption to the nor- sort of some of the norms of the property market. It's surprising that Purple Bricks isn't hasn't uh, really really uh, reaped the benefits of that. Yeah, I'm surprised by the. CEO's comments as well because they're quite positive and it doesn't it doesn't really come across that they sort of feel like they could be doing better they're almost putting it up as they're they're putting it across as if they're doing as well as they possibly can which I understand sort of why they're doing it because they want to put a positive spin on it but really I think they could be doing and should be doing a lot better yeah no I would agree with you on that 
it did sound like a sensible move to sell off uh, the Canadian business and they have been able to strengthen the balance sheet as a result. So now I think they've got about just over 75 million on the balance sheet and they've got a market cap of about 286 million as of the share, uh, the close on Friday. But I don't know. I, I'm, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't as enthused with the results as, um, you might be led to, led to believe from the uh, chief executive statement. I suppose as the industry is moving online, you do see some winners from that, like right move and purple bricks. You would expect to be one of those, but it, it just doesn't seem to be transpiring like that. Mm, I think if they're not a winner in this in this environment with a stock where really it is priced for growth, I think. You know, it's still, I mean, it's on, it's a market cap of just under 300 million. And it looks like it's got, what's the revenue for the half 44? So it's about three or four times sales. There's no earnings. I know we've got an operating profit at, at the moment, but once they have to increase the marketing spend, that's then gone again. So it's not under normal conditions, loss making. So really it needs to grow to get to a scale that justifies the current valuation. And I think if they're not growing significantly in this environment, because it's, it's all right growth, but it is single digit growth. And I think in this environment, if it's not growing, when when is it going to grow to justify the valuation that it's got? That's right. And I suppose it also depends partly just going back to the product. Do consumers want to sell or do they want to pay a fee whether or not the house sells? I think when you look at the property market as it is, that is quite a low risk of it not selling in the current conditions. But if I was selling a house, I'm not sure I'd want to take that risk if you're going to be down a grand, even if it doesn't sell. And it, That's true. If- and also, it would, in some ways, how much value do you put on the experience of a conventional estate agent? do you think they'll be able to negotiate a higher fee than potentially you on your own through the platform of Purple Bricks? I think there's more, I guess there's more security as well in that you've got, I don't know what the customer service is like, but at least with at least with the estate agent, you've got someone that you can go and have a moan to if things are slow or whatever. But <laughs> it feels like quite a gamble and I could see a lot of people being quite uncomfortable, people who would maybe be quite receptive to the Purple Bricks model and they, they're not happy with normal estate agent fees. But they don't want the same fee regardless of whether or not the property sells. I can see that being quite off-putting. Yeah, that's right. So overall thoughts, something you'd be watching or not something you'd even look at? I'd, I'd potentially come back and look at it and see if the growth picks up. But I, like I said, if, if it's not if it's not here now, when is it going to be? So it's, it's certainly not going on the watch list. No, uh, I have to say it would be the same for me. Um, Right move, which we'll we've discussed before, and I'm sure we'll be discussing again. Uh, however, is uh, yeah quite a different proposition, I think. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because I mean it's only a recent listing, but in twenty the year end twenty sixteen, the revenue was eighteen point six million. Year end twenty nineteen, so a four year period, it's up to one hundred thirteen million, and then it's just it's just stopped, basically. I mean, it was clear yeah. there was a clear deceleration over that period, but 
2019 to 2020, revenue was actually down. It's interesting how it can grow, what, 5x and then just come to a complete standstill in a four-year period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And I think that the shares are about um, at the same price they were trading at uh, when it went public on uh, the AIM. Yeah, so, back, so what are they down from there? I think wait. it was... I think it was a bit, so they closed they closed at about uh just under a pound on Friday I think 92p actually but I think they've been as high as well close to 4 pounds 50 so we're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're technically uh, down slightly on uh, over those those 5 years doesn't look very attractive to me <laughs> no all right um so next what have we got watches of switzerland okay do you want to lead so, on that yeah so watches of switzerland have released their Half-year results to 25 October 2020. For anyone who doesn't know, they're a luxury watch retailer, as hinted at by the name. They've announced revenue of 414.3 million for the half, which is down 2.6% in constant currency terms and 3.4% in reported terms. In that revenue, they've said that there was strong trading during the second quarter of the half, which was up 21.5% in constant currency terms and 19.8% in reported terms. The stores are trading at 59% of the total potential hours across the half, which was due to lockdowns and disruptions. Their e-commerce sales were up 65.4% for the half. The adjusted earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization was up 26.5% for the half, up to £52.2 million. And that gave it an adjusted EBITDA margin of 12.6%. The adjusted Earnings before interest and tax was up 33.1% to £41.5 million. The operating profit was up 52.1% to £45.6 million. Profit before tax was £36.2 million, which, and that was a loss of £9 million in the half last year. Free cash flow was £116.1 million compared to £44.1 million last year. Return on capital employed increased to 17.2% up from 15.7% last year. Net debt reduced to £22.7 million compared to £92 million last year. They've described it as a resilient UK performance with first half sales down 7.4%. And that was achieved despite the significant headwinds from the pandemic resulting in store closures, lower traffic since reopening and the impact of global traffic. They noted that the strong domestic sales offset lower tourism and airport business, which accounted for 7.4% of group revenue compared to 33% in the same half last year. They said the US business continues to advance with first half sales up 11% in constant currency terms. They announced the acquisition of Analog Shift, which is a US retailer of vintage and pre-owned watches to further advance the strong and growing position in the US market. They've also given an update on the current trading for the third quarter. They've said that they've had a positive, stronger than anticipated start, despite the impact of national lockdowns in the UK and international and reduced international clientele and shopping centre traffic. They said the group revenue for the seven weeks to 13 December 2020 was up 11.9% in constant currency terms and 11.2% in reported terms. They've said higher conversion is more than offsetting lower traffic across both the UK and US. E-commerce sales in the current quarter up 102.4%. US for the current quarter is up 22.7% in constant currency. They've raised their guidance for the full 2021 year. They've raised revenue up to 900 to 925 million 
compared to previous guidance of 880 to 910 million. They've announced an intention to repay furlough support received from the government, and that has since been repaid. You look at the performance by geography, the US they talk about is the market they're looking to develop the most. So of the group revenue in the 13 weeks to 25 October 2020, total revenue for that quarter was 262.7 million. And of that, 185.9 million was UK and 76.8 million was US. They've not given the figures for the what proportion of the sales do come from online. So although that's up significantly, it's not entirely clear what it's up from. John, what are your thoughts on watches of Switzerland? Um, I suppose as a sector, I'm not really sure on it. I guess what it does have going for it is quite the upper end of the market. So, you know, it could be cushioned from perhaps wider consumer trends as a result of that. A bit uh, similar to Burberry that we discussed a few weeks ago. Something other than what you said that I'd be worried about is the government's position on scrapping the VAT refunds for international tourists and whether that would be something that as a result of COVID and the change of the VAT rates that watches of Switzerland might be particularly impacted by. It looks like the uh, international sales are currently accounting for 7.4% of revenue compared to 33% last year. If it goes back up to 33%, that's a concern. But as it stands based on the business as it is at the minute, it's not a huge issue, but you would expect it to go back up, wouldn't you? You would. And I think Merrill Lynch had commented on this and thought that it could it could if this VAT change went ahead or the you know the non-refunding of uh, VAT could it, uh, cause watch the Switzerland to lose about 58 million that that was their projecting on uh, projection on it but yeah like you say it was much lower this year just because there was far uh, far fewer tourists visiting the UK what do you think of it as a business then I mean it sounds like it's well run and it's yeah the upmarket retail, I suppose retail as a whole, I'm not particularly drawn to. So it's probably not something that I'd be investing in. But I suppose if you were to say, looking at re- just looking at retail, it's perhaps one of the better players in that market. Yeah, I'd agree. I was, I was, I didn't know what to expect because I'd never really looked at it, but I came away being quite impressed with it as a business, especially given how it's dealt with the pandemic I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be putting up such impressive results and to be I suppose really they are very impressive results and it almost sounds like a beneficiary of the pandemic which it's not (laughs) a luxury watch retailer is not something you'd have predicted to be in that category no they even opened up five new stores during the past six months yes say something about it too no, I, I did like it. No, I'd, I'd definitely be happy to come back and have another look at it at some point. Valuation as well. So it's so the market cap's 1.32 billion. It looks like it only listed a couple of years ago. It's up almost 100% since listing. When did it go public? Looks like it was in 2018. That's when the graph starts anyway for the share price. <laughs> That's what I've done it based. And then it's, it's only got three years of numbers on the website. But for the year ended 2018, when it went public, it had revenue of 631 million. And that's compared to the 900 million that he said it now expects for the 2021 year. And earnings per share not been particularly impressive in that period, but they've, they've been putting it back into the business. They do give their own adjusted earnings per share, which is 
has grown nicely in line with the business, but I am skeptical of adjusted earnings per share. I guess if you look at it in terms of the return on capital employed, that is good and it's increasing. So you would expect once it's finished growing for that to flow through into the earnings. But yeah, I thought it looked like quite a quality business actually. Yeah. Well, I think probably one of those ones that we might have on the watch list for retail stocks. Yes. I mean, if you put a gun to my head and force yeah. me to buy a retail <laughs> stock, it would definitely be one of the ones that was under consideration. Yeah. Or what would you have at the top of the list? Tesco's we discussed a few weeks ago. It probably would be Tesco, yeah. You'd probably would, be Tesco, would you count okay. Burberry as a retailer? Uh, luxury. Yeah, I'd probably put it'd be I'd probably put that on the list as well. Yeah. I mean Tesco's the opposite well, far from luxury, but uh yeah. No, it looked like yeah. a nice okay. business. Okay. So should we move on to Inditex? Yeah, so Inditex, well, another retailer. I wouldn't quite say at the other end of the market, it's still probably come under the category of fast fashion. So Inditex, the owner of Zara, they had their third quarter results out. They're listed in Spain, Spanish company. And the group reported that their net sales fell by 10% to 6.1 billion euros. And that's ignoring the impact of exchange rates. This decline was largely reflective of the impact of the secondary lockdowns that we've uh, been seeing. Encouragingly, though, the sales of the first half uh, of October were actually level with last year. And online sales, which helped offset a little bit, they'd risen by 76%. EBITDA had also fallen 10% to 1.8 billion euros. And they're relatively unique in, in that category of retail in that they've got a good integration of the stock system between the physical shops and the online, allowing to manage the inventory more efficiently. They'd also announced that the resumption of the dividend will happen next year with a 60% uh, payout ratio. And Zara, or sorry, Inditex, after all of this, has a net cap position of over 6 billion euros. Fairly punchy valuation. They've got a price to earnings of 29.1. That compares uh, with a 10-year average of around the 24 mark. On these results, on the uh, quarterly results, the shares were broadly flat on the day. But to me, those results in the context of everything are fairly impressive. What are your thoughts, Sam? Yeah, I thought they were quite decent results, all things considered. The price to earnings was interesting because although it's quite punchy at 29 at the minute, I guess if you if you look at it on a normalised PE basis, it's actually under 23, so it's just below that 10-year average. I think that's quite high for a retailer, but I guess when it's that size, it's probably got a bit more of a moat than most retailers. And with the 60% payout ratio, you are getting quite a nice dividend. So the prospective yield over the next 12 months is 3.2%. It's very, I think, in terms of the business itself and the products that they offer, it really does mirror what you get on the catwalk coming to the sort of average high street consumer very quickly. And those changes do mean that it sort of ends up probably at the higher end of the of high street fashion and is very on trend almost all of the time. So it possibly does deserve that more expensive valuation. Yeah, my only real criticism of it is that it's a retailer. And that's not really anything it can do about that. It looks like a good business in an unattractive industry. No. So would it be going on your watch? Yeah, I I would tend to agree with you on that. Well, like I said with retail before, I'm just not that 
not that keen. I mean, the first retailer I bought, obviously completely different to this, was Tesco's. I got badly burned with that. So retail is not something that I've been uh, dipping into or not not significantly since then. But I think it's it's one that I, I may watch and see how it performs over the next few years um, with a close eye. But I assume you're not, you're not uh, considering it at the moment. No, I struggle to see a situation where I'd ever buy it. And like, that's not a criticism of it as a business. It is just like high street fashion is such a tough industry. You know, if, yeah. it, if, it, if it and finds this is on the, back, the backdrop of a global pandemic. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't going to say global oh, pandemic. Right. I was going to say, well, we saw Topshop, Dorothy Perkins, Burton, Debenhams, a, a lot of casualties in this last year. Yeah, exactly. And on the surface, whilst that, that might s- seem fairly good for the competitors, I guess the problem is that you need other stop- shops in the high street for people to go. And this yeah. is it is primarily a high street play, really. It, no, absolutely it is. It is. So, yeah, good business in a poor industry is what I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> okay. All right. And last on the list, we've got, well, it's, it's not really a stock, but it's Bitcoin. So in, in particular, Ruffer's decision to buy $750 million, was it, Sam? Yes, or it's about £550 million, but most of the sites reporting it are reporting it dollars. So yeah, that's what it is in dollars. What um, do you think this says about Bitcoin? And just tell us a little bit more about what Bitcoin's been doing recently, because I think the last time most people probably heard about Bitcoin was the big rally that we had up to $20,000 a couple of years ago. Yeah, so it, since then, it's just dropped all the way down to $3,000 around there. And then it's since come back up. And in the last few weeks, it's gone past that previous high that it set three years ago. So it's now, I don't know what it's at right now, but yesterday it hit about $24,000, which was a new all-time high. We've covered it slightly in relation to, I guess, when we did the book reviews of Andrew Craig, How to Own the World, mm-hmm. and also the Ivy portfolio. I think I think we did cover that, I guess, that well, my view is that I, I would almost class it as a commodity, really, or it'd go in that section of the portfolio. I'd, I would agree with what Andrew Craig said in his book, where a 1% to 5% position probably makes quite a bit of sense. And it seems like Ruffert agrees with that as well. They issued a performance update and managers' comments to all their investors, and I'll just read from it. We wanted to give shareholders a short update on the performance this year and let you know about a new allocation to the digital currency Bitcoin. The portfolio has made strong progress amid the turmoil of 2020. To the 8th of December, net asset value total return is 12.2%. During the panic back in March, the protective assets did all we hoped they would. In spring and early summer, gold and inflation-linked bonds perform well. More recently, the economically sensitive equities have reacted very positively to the success of the COVID-19 vaccines, leading the portfolio higher. One recent addition via one of the specialist managers appointed within the Ruffer Multi-Strategies Fund has been Bitcoin. This is primarily a defensive move, one made in November after reducing the company's exposure to gold. The exposure to Bitcoin is currently equivalent to around 2.5% of the portfolio, we see this as a small but potent insurance policy against the continuing devaluation of the world's major currencies. Bitcoin diversifies the company's much larger investments in gold and inflation-linked bonds and also acts as a hedge against some monetary and market risks that we see. So just to add a bit of context, for anyone who doesn't know, Ruffer, there are, there are UK 
wealth manager, I guess, and they they run a number of funds. They've got about twenty point three billion pounds of assets under management at thirty November twenty twenty, and they are they position themselves as very very risk averse. So I just to read their about section on the website, which is their own words. They say to invest well, we need to take on risk. With risk comes great responsibility. Our preoccupation is with not losing money rather than charging headlong for growth. It's by putting safety first that we've made good money for our clients through boom and bust for nearly 25 years. If we keep doing our job well, we will protect our client's capital and increase its real value substantially. They openly accept that if you invest your money with them, you are likely to underperform the the well the equi- global equities because their primary purpose is not to lose money. It's not to beat the stock market. I think it's very, very interesting because they are probably one of the most risk-averse, significant wealth managers in the UK. And that decision to put the 2.5% is extremely interesting. A cryptocurrency media outlet called Coindesk actually contacted them and they were a bit confused about the initial memo because they weren't sure whether the investment was 2.5% of the multi-strategy fund or 2.5% of total funds under management. And Ruffer confirmed at that point that it was 2.5% of the total fund of £20 billion of assets under management. So over half a billion or 37,500 Bitcoin that they've purchased. It's quite interesting just because people, a lot of the time, people just view Bitcoin as this speculative asset and they all they really know about it is the price. But what Ruff has done, where they've put a small allocation to it as a hedge against currency devaluation, I think makes total sense. And I think it goes into the, the digital gold argument of Bitcoin, which is, for me, the strongest use case of it. Mm. And although they've done this, they did this in November. So although it wasn't at all time highs, it was... It was certainly not cheap back in November either. If the digital gold argument holds up, which I think it does, I think it performs a lot of the functions of gold better than gold. And I think it's possibly the only truly scarce digital asset in the sense that a lot of the currencies that have come, cryptocurrencies that have come along since, I don't necessarily think they have true scarcity, part, partially because of their centralization compared to Bitcoin. And just to draw you on that point, Sam, so... What would the reasons for choosing Bitcoin over actual gold be? Well, so if you look at why people like gold, it's because it's a scarce asset, which Bitcoin is also. The only thing with gold is we don't actually know how much gold is in the ground. And then there is a genuine issue that if in the next say 100 or 200 years, say we do get into space properly, there is so much gold in space that it would not be a scarce asset anymore. In addition... Bitcoin is harder to, to fake than gold. Well, it just it can't be copied or forged, whereas gold can. Bitcoin is more divisible. If you had a lump of gold, if you wanted to divide it, that's that again, that's quite difficult. Bitcoin is easier to transport. You could just memorize your private key and you could take. So, for example, if you're a refugee fleeing a country, you could take your wealth in Bitcoin a lot easier than you could take it in gold. And if you had it in gold, it'd be a lot more likely to be taken off you. So as a store of value, I think Bitcoin performs that function better than gold. And even if you look at Bitcoin at all-time highs now, it's only at about $442 billion, and that's compared to about $10 trillion for gold. So we're still it's still only about 4% of the total market cap of gold. I don't think it's inconceivable that we, we see a scenario in the next sort of, maybe even the next 10 years where the Bitcoin market cap 
is equal to that of gold. And I mean, so some of the points that you raised, though, on the sort of holding gold, it's probably easier than it's ever been to sort of hold gold or hold it in the sense that you, you could buy it through an ETF, even if that whether that's having physical gold or you know holding it sort of in a synthetic form, which I appreciate may uh, be counter to some of the arguments for holding it, but it is cheaper than ever before to actually sort of own it. Do you think that? changes your view at all or you still think the same arguments would hold not really because i'm not i'm not really talking about a scenario where like the value of gold goes to zero or anything but but i think as a store of value bitcoin works just as well if not better so i don't bitcoin it, it, it is the better technology and i appreciate the better technology doesn't always win but I think when gold is at a market cap of 10 trillion and Bitcoin's at 400 billion, I think Bitcoin is underpriced relative to gold. I think providing, I know I know, I did talk about that scenario where we potentially get into space or whatever, and then gold is no longer a scarce asset. But as long as we are not a truly space-faring like, planet, I, 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 I do think that, that I, I don't think gold's going away. I'm not saying that at all. And I, I, I think when you look at what's going going on with the money supplies at the minute with a lot of governments, I don't... I don't think gold's a particularly terrible asset to hold either. I just think when you look at the size of Bitcoin, you've probably got a lot more room for capital growth than you do with gold. And now that is that you do have more risk as well, but I think I think there's a lot more to it than just the speculative mania that people talk about, like when it gets compared to the Dutch tulip mania. I don't think that's really a fair comparison. No. So would you then, I mean, you, you say that you like crypto as part of, or Bitcoin, I should say, as part of the portfolio. Would you also like some gold as part of your portfolio for the same reasons? I wouldn't be against it. I mean, it, 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 goes back to, it goes back to, I guess, what I said when we talked about the Andrew Craig book and the Ivy portfolio, where I think if I was running a larger portfolio than, than what I have, if I was a different demographic as well, where I'm, I'm very young and I can be in high growth equities, Say in 30 years, if I've got a decent portfolio and I'm actually thinking about retirement a lot more, I think I would have a large proportion of it in commodities. I think that's I think there's a lot of room for commodities in the portfolio, and especially like we talked about in the I when we covered the Ivy portfolio, where there's they've got a low correlation to uh, stocks and bonds. So it'll hopefully allow you to maintain yeah. good good pos- good real returns with lower volatility for the ro- the overall portfolio. I guess inside that commodity section, you would include an allocation to gold. And I just think if you have an, include an allocation to gold, I think that you, sh- you should consider including an allocation to Bitcoin as well. And I, I do say as well, rather than instead of. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a fair point. For listeners, what do you think, practically speaking, would be the best way of buying and holding Bitcoin? I mean, first, it's not definitely not advice to go out and buy Bitcoin because we're not no, really no. financial. But I think Coinbase is probably the easiest way to hold it. The only thing I would say is that if you hold it on Coinbase, they, they are holding your Bitcoin for you. You don't hold your own Bitcoin. But I think if you want to get a little bit whilst you learn more about it, I think that's that's probably the easiest way to do it. I think it's worth mentioning as well that Bitcoin, although I, although I would include it in the same part of the portfolio as commodities, where I'd say that if you were doing 20% of the portfolio, say towards commodities, then maybe think of like 5 or 10% to Bitcoin and then like maybe five five percent of gold or something, and then the rest is like a commodities index or something. I think what's interesting as well is that Bitcoin, it's not going to be correlated probably with the commodities either. So it's it's 
I'd view it as almost like the addition of another uncorrelated asset that's got a high potential for capital returns. So then you further, you're hopefully maintaining, or I guess with Bitcoin potentially even increasing your expected returns whilst decreasing your overall volatility. Do you think over the long term, it it would be more correlated to gold for the same reasons? I think if you got to a scenario where it did have the same market cap as gold, it's it's just it's not going to be as volatile as it is today, or you wouldn't expect it to be. So I think yeah. possibly it would do, but I think if you were building a portfolio today, I I think as an uncorrelated asset, that's I think there's a there's a lot more research and reading you have to do. But I think that even at these prices, I still think a one to five percent allocation towards Bitcoin I think makes sense. What are your thoughts, John? Because you're not. Yeah. No. I. I... I basically I buy into the argument, um, and I would I already hold some gold through or precious metals I should say uh, through a commodities index and Bitcoin I would happily allocate sort of dollar cost average or pound cost average it and add some to the portfolio. I suppose the practical difficulty is how what the safest way of doing that is. Coinbase. The coin, well, if, but, if, if think like Coinbase, they yeah. just filed the S one to go public, and they're not they're not going anywhere. So I think if ideally you'd learn more about it and then store it yourself. But I don't think there's really anything wrong with having a small amount on Coinbase whilst you're learning about it. Yeah, but let's say that you're small. I mean, at the current growth of Bitcoin, or growth in the price of Bitcoin, if you are holding a slightly larger amount, or or that's what it develops into. Supposing there's a hack, what what are your protections um, well, from you, this point you, of view as a UK, UK consumer? You'd need to get it off there, wouldn't you? I don't I don't think you'd be covered okay. in the same way where you would be with like a bank account or something. Well, yeah, I know yeah. you wouldn't. So, so there's like there's, yeah. there's there's different ways of storing it, and it is possible to store it in a way where it it your issue wouldn't be it being hacked. Your issue would be you losing your own losing access, it. and no one can restore it for you. So. As, as long as you do it properly and take the proper precautions, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to store it. Okay. And there's different ways of doing it. There's like paper wallets and there's like, there's the little memory stick things you might've seen where you plug it in and it's, it's, it's sort of stored on that. All that really is doing is remembering your private key. So it's not really like a memory stick where, or anything, but it's, um, there are ways to do it. I think it's interesting as well because where we've seen Ruffer doing this, I don't think they're going to be the last. And there's there's another there's a company called MicroStrategy in the US, and that's an S and P 500 company. And they've actually they basically put their balance sheet into Bitcoin, so they've bought about forty thousand Bitcoin themselves. But I think we're going to get to a scenario where it's a lot more common for institutional investors to just have a small allocation towards Bitcoin. And I think for the reasons I've I've, I've explained, and I think if that does happen, if you look at the current price and the supply of Bitcoin, it's it, there aren't enough bitcoins to go around and it is it is a supply and demand thing so for example where Ruffer have been able to buy 37,500 bitcoin and microstrategy have bought 40,000 i mean the total maximum supply ever is only 21 million so if it becomes normal cool. for more institutional investors to put just a small portion of the portfolio say one or two percent into bitcoin the price is only going to go up because they, they're not going to be able to buy the same number of Bitcoin that Ruffer have been able to buy because it's like when Ruffer bought those Bitcoin, those they've come off the market essentially. So you're just getting a smaller and smaller supply. There's going to be an increase in price, isn't there? If that scenario were oh, yeah, to play yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you have any thoughts on buying Bitcoin through say an ETF, like people who would buy gold through an ETF now? I wouldn't have anything against it, but I think it is, 
it's a lot easier to buy your own Bitcoin than it is to buy your own gold. Okay. So sure. I think it, it probably, the reasons you, you've outlined, yeah, yeah. So it probably makes more sense to buy it yourself. But I guess for some people, if they want to buy it in an ETF, I wouldn't be against it. But what happens as well, you tend to pay a bit of a premium compared to the actual price of Bitcoin. Sure, like the sure. ETF might be at like a 10 or 15% premium, for example, compared to the actual price of Bitcoin. And then you do yeah. have the issue that if the ETF gets hacked, you're in trouble. You'd hope the ETF has maybe like taken out some sort of insurance policy or something, but you are relying on the ETF to look after it. Whereas you've, you've got the option of looking after it yourself. Whereas with gold, I don't think it's that easy. Yeah. No, no, it's no. like with you, with your precious metals, you don't, you don't want someone delivering your copper and your grain <laughs> and your, your animal skins to your house do you so you have to hold it through an etf yeah 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 but i yeah i i, I take your point i take your point fine well i, I think that no, i think that's in, that's interesting and yeah i would tend to agree with those arguments that you've made about bitcoin and it being a store of value and essentially a, a digital gold i think just at the moment it's probably and practically not quite as straightforward as it is to buy most of your stocks especially now that you can sort of use free trading apps and you can use sort of you know you've got vanguard you you haven't quite had that equivalent just Mm -hmm. yet with bitcoin but as you've said it's not as difficult as you you might initially imagine i think people need to realize as well it is a risky asset and you need to put in an allocation where if it goes to zero, you are completely comfortable with that because it, it could still go to zero. I don't think it's very likely at this stage and I don't think it's going to happen, but it is a possibility and it's a much larger possibility than if you were to buy like most of the equities that we cover, which is why I think that one to 5% range is, is more sensible because then if you do get the sort of capital appreciation that I, I think is certainly a possibility, you should do very well. But if it does go to zero, which is also a possibility, you're not going to be ruined by it. I think some people have a tendency to behave as if it's more of a certainty than a possibility that it's, it's going to, for example, like have the same market cap as gold. Yeah, no, sure. And I suppose one of the things that you would, that we probably both feel is more certain is inflation and the inflationary pe- pressure uh, or uh, quantitative easing going on in the UK and in the US that your the cash in your uh, bank account is going to be worth less as we go on year to year i don't see it like, although you'd, you'd hope it slows down in the near future it's not it's not gonna stop is it no that's right so i suppose it, it would be that sort of asset allocation and what percentage you do have to alternative mm. assets um, which is why i think Ruffer's move makes so much sense just to bring it full circle yeah especially right. if, if they right. are the kind of fund where it's about providing positive real returns and not trying to beat the stock market it does make sense for them to have an allocation to bitcoin i think yeah, no, absolutely. Agree with you there. Of the three stocks we've talked about, yeah. so Purple Bricks, Watches of Switzerland and Inditex, if you had to buy one, which one would it be? And if Bitcoin were thrown in as a fourth option, <laughs> would that change what you bought? Well, I don't, like you say, I think they're different asset classes. So I, I wouldn't like to sort of compare Bitcoin with stocks, but I would probably go with Inditex and I'd but still happily buy and it, it, you know averaging things out with pound cost averaging some Bitcoin as well. Uh, okay. I'd probably go with watches of Switzerland rather than Inditex. No, really? Okay. No. Okay. No personal bricks for either of us. No, uh, no, no, no. Um I think I, I like the idea of purple bricks, but it just doesn't seem to be playing out in terms of the 
business being successful. Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah, back on to the book review for this week, which is Malkiel, Professor Malkiel, I think from Princeton, actually, his famous book, which was published, I think, was it was it back in the 80s, Sam? I think it was earlier. I think it might have been 70s. 70s. It was a long it's time been, ago, anyway. It's been through several uh, several editions, and it's a random walk down Wall Street. Yes. So do you want to explain a bit of the background and what the book is about, Sam? Yeah, so people might have heard us just mention it in passing on previous episodes, where I think we've both agreed it's probably the best investing book that we've read. I think that's is that a fair comment oh, yeah. for you as yeah, well. Yeah, that's a very fair comment. Yeah, so I was interested to go back to it, because what I found was I was recommending it to people. And I've read it like four or five years ago, so I couldn't really remember what was in it. <laughs> so I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to check it was worth recommending, really. So I've reread it, and it's split into four parts. First part, it just goes over what stocks are and how their values are determined and different theories are coming up with their value. And it then also spends a few chapters in that part going over like the history of stocks and manias, which is, I think is really, really quite interesting. So that part is just setting the scene, really. And then in part two, it basically goes over technical and fundamental analysis and tries to like debunk them and it's mainly just talking about those different ways of analyzing stocks and I think the technical analysis point I I, I do tend to agree with I thought that the attempt to like debunk fundamental analysis was maybe there were some weaknesses in in his argument so one thing he talked about is like he's basically quite quite a big he places a lot of weight in what's called the efficient market hypothesis and that's the underlying thesis is that the stock market is efficiently priced and anyone who does well in the stock market, that's mainly as a result of luck. And he talks about the example where if you toss, like if you get a thousand people in a coin tossing competition after like eight or nine goes, there's going to be like 10 of them left that have tossed 10 heads in a row. And he talks about how like, even though they've beaten the odds, you'd expect that small subset of the population to do very well. What I don't think it really covers is that if those if those eight or nine people with the coin tossing had the exact same technique, or for example, if, if you take Buffett as an example, where he's a, a disciple of Ben Graham and his, his school of value investing, Buffett was not the only student of Ben Graham. And if you looked at a number of the students of Ben Graham who were, who were friends with Warren Buffett back in like the sixties, and they all used to meet up like every couple of years, all of them had unbelievably good track records in investing and i think if you go back to that coin tossing example if every person who's tossed eight heads in a row not only did they have the same style but they were also from the same part of the country again you would have to look at whether there must be something that's going on there it's the probabilities don't work in the same way because you're acting as if it's a random group of people that have tossed the heads whereas if there's some sort of correlation between the technique or something like that then i think that maybe is well i don't think he's really really addressed that point in part three he talks about other investment methods so he goes over like modern portfolio theory capital asset pricing model and overall i found that part to be very very academic and a lot of it i actually i didn't like and i probably disagreed with but he's he's coming from an academic background so i guess you need to take that into consideration there was a chapter in part three on behavioral investing which was very very good and then part four is his practical guide which he probably only, it's mainly addressed at like US citizens because it's talking about like 401ks and stuff like that. But what it is, is it's talking about how you should invest and it's it's building up. It's talking about ways to do better if you decide you do want to invest yourselves. But it's basically building up to explaining that it's so difficult and the odds are against you and the, the returns are so good with indexing that almost why would you want to bother anyway? And it really, I, I overall, 
I thought it was excellent as I did the first time. I thought there was too much weight given to the efficient market hypothesis, which I don't have many. Po- I, I don't. I, well, I think it's a lot of rubbish to be honest. Um, I thought mm. parts of it were too academic. However, I, I do stand by what I said. What, what I'd say, whereas if I could only recommend one book to people on investing, and that was the book they had to read and they couldn't read anything else, I would still recommend Malkiel even though there's quite a bit I disagree with, just because you're going to come out of it with the conclusion that you need to go and index and you're not going to get any stupid ideas about other ways you're going to do really well. It's hard to read the book and come out of it behaving in a way where you're not going to increase your wealth over the long term. Yeah, I would tend, I agree with you on those points. I think if you're really to simplify it, it would be that you should invest in stocks for long-term growth uh, and increasing your wealth it's very difficult to beat the market, whether you're trying to use fundamental analysis or whether you're trying to use technical analysis. And you can not reduce the risk, but reduce volatility by pound cost or dollar cost averaging. So buying, for example, an index fund at the same time every month with the same amount. And over the long term, because you're in the market, you're likely to benefit from the trends of the market, regardless of how efficient or inefficient you think the market actually is. And you could probably make the argument that it's more efficient now than it has been in the past. Then, and like you say, in the long term, if you do that within a 401k or in this country, if you did it within an ISA or your pension, then you're likely over the long term to do well. And I think the statistics that he mentions, not that it's impossible to beat the market, but very few people and this is included in the professional sector, managed to consistently beat the market over the long long term. Yeah. I think it just comes to a slightly different conclusion on that where he thinks it's because he puts it down to luck and I think there is still some skill. And oh, I, uh, I do. Abs- I, I, absolutely. I, I would uh, definitely, I don't think you could do it by luck. Al- well, yeah. it's very unlikely that these people would have done it by luck alone mm. over the time periods they, they did do it and they did perform. I think there's absolutely, there's more to it than that. I think the other thing that's important with it is that the technique of dollar cost in- indexing and buying, you know, um, whether it's the S&P 500, the World Index, FTSE 100, I think it takes the psychology out of it as well. And I think within with it investing, and if you're buying individual stocks, there can be a lot of psychology involved and that can sort of skew your judgments uh, a lot of the time. And until you've actually had experience of doing that, you probably, as a new investor, don't realise quite how powerful that is. Yeah. And there's there was a few other things that I wanted to address from it as well that I've pulled out. So one of them was he refers to... Um, a story about Nathan Rothschild. So he talks about, <laughs> I do think it's important to debunk this. Okay, he good. Said, Nathan Rothschild made millions in the markets when his carrier pigeons brought him the first news of Wellington's victory at Waterloo before other traders were aware of the victory. So this is referring to like a very well-known story about Nathan Rothschild, where it's like the most one of the most common things talked about about him. Where the story is that the Rothschilds in the 19th century their information network was just completely unparalleled so this is before the telegraph and the telephone so they had they had people who were like it was hot people were riding on horse and then they'd pass the message on to someone else who'd go on a fresh horse and they had this network all around europe and they were able to get news out quicker than anyone else and receive news quicker than anyone else to the point where even then the british government were actually, and governments around europe were using the rothschild network 
transport messages. And the Rothschilds were allowed to actually like piggyback on that and read the messages, which gave them loads of inside information. But one of the stories is that at the Battle of Waterloo, Nathan Rothschild, he got the news of Wellington's victory before anyone else. So he went down to the London Stock Exchange that day and everyone was watching what Nathan Rothschild was going to do. And the story is that what he did was he started selling government bonds as quickly as he could. So everyone else thought that that meant... Wellington must have lost the battle. So they all started selling government bonds. And then at the end of the day, he supposedly bought all the bonds back for a depressed price because he knew that actually Wellington had won the victory. And it's a really good story, but the problem is it's not actually true. So he <laughs> so actually are lost, you going to enlighten us, Sam? What actually happened? So what happened was he actually, he had positioned himself and his bets on the market were positioned so that he actually expected... He thought Napoleon would be defeated, but he expected it to take longer. So he actually lost a significant amount of money on the Battle of Waterloo. And that story where he's gone into the stock exchange, it just didn't happen. Interestingly as well, he actually, one of the things he did to make money around that period was he was smuggling gold through France to Wellington's army so that he could pay the soldiers. And Napoleon was aware of this and he allowed it to happen because he thought that the gold leaving the country would would help his position because everyone was on the gold standard at the time. And he could have actually cut off the supply of gold to Wellington's army, which could have made a massive difference to the to the war effort if Wellington hadn't been able to pay the soldiers. Yeah, so I wanted to debunk that fact. So that out of the okay. way, because I think it's important okay. that people know about that. So it included a graph where it was the annual returns, and we can't show the graph because it's a podcast, but it shows the annual returns on rates of common stocks for various time periods from 1950 to 2013. And what it shows is the variance in your stocks depend on your holding period. So if you were holding from any one year period from 1950 to 2013, your returns could have varied from positive 52% to negative 37. And then those that variance gets smaller and smaller to the point where if you're holding for 25 years, your returns on average per year would have been anywhere from 17% down to 7.96%. So what you're saying is that in that time period, over any 25-year period, you would have got a return of at least 7.96%. However, if you'd held it for a shorter amount of time, that return, it fluctuates a lot more wildly and you're a lot more likely to have lost money. So again, it's just another point that if you're buying and holding and you're holding for, for years or decades, you're almost, you are taking out a huge amount of the risk just because you're not going to get that same volatility. Or you're going to get the volatility, but your expected return, it's, it's, it's going to be more likely to be positive. So I'll just read his last reflections as well. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, so this is just the last like page or so of the book. So he said, we are now at the end of our walk. Let's look back for a moment and see where we have been. It is clear that the ability to beat the averages consistently is extremely rare. Neither fundamental analysis of a stock's firm foundation nor technical analysis of the market's propensity for building castles in the air can produce reliably superior results. Even the pros must hide their heads in shame when they compare their results to those obtained by the dartboard method of picking stocks. Sensible investment policies for individuals must then be developed into two steps. First, it's crucially important to understand the risk-return trade-offs that are available and to tailor your choice of securities to your temperament and requirements. Part four provided a careful guide, including blah, blah, blah. This chapter has covered the major part of our walk down Wall Street, three important steps for buying common stocks. I begin by suggesting sensible strategies that are consistent with the existence of reasonably efficient markets. 
The indexing strategy is the one I recommend most highly. At least the core of every investment portfolio ought to be indexed. I recognize, however, that telling most investors that there is no hope of beating the averages is like telling a six-year-old that there's no Santa Claus. It takes the zing out of life. For those of you incurably smitten with the speculative bug who insist on picking individual stocks in an attempt to beat the market, I offered four rules. The odds are really stacked against you, but you may get lucky and win big. I'm also very skeptical that you find investment managers who have the talent for finding those rare $100 bills lying around in the marketplace. Never forget that past records are far from reliable guides for future performance. Investing is a bit like lovemaking. Ultimately, it is really an art requiring a certain talent and the presence of a mysterious force called luck. Indeed, luck may be 99% responsible for the success of the very few people who have beaten the averages. Although men flatter themselves with their great actions, La Rocha Fossold, or however you pronounce it, wrote, they are not often the results of great design as chance. The game of investing is like lovemaking in another important aspect too. It's too much fun to give up. If you have the talent to recognize stocks that have good value and the art to recognize a story that will catch the fancy of others, it's a great feeling to see the market vindicate you. Even if you are not so lucky, my rules will help you limit your risks and avoid much of the pain that is sometimes involved in the playing. If you know you will either win or at least not lose so much, and if you index at least the core of your portfolio, you will be able to play the game with more satisfaction. At the very least, I hope this book makes the game all the more enjoyable. So I sort of agree with what he's saying, where I do think like at least a part of every portfolio should be in indexes, just in case you're not as clever as you think you are. But it, yeah, it goes back to what we said about, I think you definitely can beat the market if you're doing the right things. <laughs> Consistently? I think so. Okay, okay. Well, on that note, I think, I think we'll end. And thank you for the last standard episode before Christmas. We are going to, on the next episode, start our fantasy portfolio for 2021. And we'll put it to the test, Sam. We'll see whether we can beat the market. Yeah, we'll be building a fancy portfolio of £1 million. And if anyone would like to give us a million actual pounds just to really <laughs> increase the excitement, then please do get in touch. But otherwise, we'll just be doing the fantasy portfolio next week. We'll just be building that up on the episode and hopefully arguing over stocks. But if we, all, okay. if we both agree on the stocks that go into it, then it might just be a five-minute episode. All right. See you next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.